Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 2,326. Be prepared to be inspired. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah! Today I'm in sunny Pasadena, Florida, with a very special guest by the name of John Starkey. John, welcome to Cars Yeah! Do you have any gear, and are you ready to release the clutch? I'm ready to release the clutch, Mark. You have released a lot of clutches in your life because we're going to be talking about a wonderful life of around race cars, racing some really wonderful cars, and writing and authoring some fantastic books. One of those books is a specific book we're going to be talking about today. But before we get into that, what's one little thing that maybe people don't know about John Starkey? Gosh, um, I used to manage a very successful comedian in England for 18 years. And that certainly opened my eyes unto the world in a big way. I'm going to mention this in the uh, intro, but is that Jasper Carrots? Yep, that's him. Okay, yeah. That must have been very interesting. I mean, this is so bizarre. In your intro, I was writing this up for uh, our talk today, and I'm going, now that's an interesting start. Whatever got you into that business? I was in a rock band when I was in my teens, and Jasper became our manager. I think I was 18 at the time. And he and, and he was catastrophic as a manager. Years later, he started a folk music club in a local town called Solihull. And I went along on the third night and thought, what a great idea. So together with a friend, Bob, we started one about 20 miles away. And they were both very successful, these clubs. And Jasper used to do the residency but he used to do folk songs with a bit of chat in between. After a while, the chat overtook the songs, and then I got him a record deal, and he was off. And, uh, you know, he got gold records, and he made television series for the BBC. And, and here's a little-known fact. He retired in about 1994, but he got bored. So he started a quiz show. It was called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah, I know about that. Wow. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes uh, boredom can lead to wonderful things. So uh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Quite fascinating. Well, let's talk about you. So allow me to give you an introduction here. John Starkey is a self-confessed racing fanatic, works as a consultant, a researcher, an author, and has written over 24 books, including his new book, which we'll be talking about today, titled Lola GT, The DNA of the Ford GT40, published by our friends at Veloce. Originally from Birmingham, England. I think the accent gave you away a little bit today, John. (laughs) Probably did. (laughs) Yes. Uh, He had dreams of rock and roll stardom. He played the guitar in several bands, and along the way, he even opened for the Beatles all the way back in 1963. Very fascinating. And as we mentioned, he became Jasper Carrot's manager in 1971. John's father's love for fast cars had passed down to him and started with a Jaguar XK120, 
bought in 1966 for a mere 120 pounds. <laughs> he started discovering this heady world of cars and sports cars and racing. And after a 1958 Ferrari 250 GT Comp, Berlinetta, he bought in the 1970s. Life was never quite the same. He got the racing bug. It bit him hard. And he first drove a Porsche RSR that, man, that really bit him well. I can't imagine why. This was followed by a beast of a turbocharged 935 Porsche. Ooh, one of my favorites. And then a Lola T70 Mark 3B Coupe. You're a brave man. And a March 84G. These he raced across Europe and America. His love for these cars led him to write his first book on sports cars and racing cars. We'll be back in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsors. So give them a little love. Buckle up. We'll be right back. Years ago, when it was time to renew my collector car insurance policy, my carrier's rates went up way up, but my usage was the same and I never made a claim. I didn't even have a ticket. So what's with that? So I turned to American Collectors Insurance. Has your collector car insurance recently raised your rates for no good reason? Tired of paying an annual membership fee? Then it's time to look around and call American Collectors Insurance. I shopped around, I asked friends for recommendations and found a winner that I can trust. And boy, I'm glad I did. I saved hundreds of dollars every year and slept better at night knowing my baby was properly insured. American Collectors Insurance have been protecting vehicles since 1976. They provided me with an agreed value insurance policy backed by their history of taking great care of their clients. What could be better than that? So give them a call and ask for a quote today. 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866-224-9324. And protect the ones you love like I did with American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. Did you know that Cars Yeah is in the top 1% of all podcasts based on listenership, according to Lipson, the premier RSS feed for podcasts in the United States? That's right. Plus, DuPont Registry recommended Cars Yeah is one of their top 10 car podcasts for you to enjoy. Cars yeah has experienced tremendous growth, plus your ads are evergreen, meaning they never go away. And more and more listeners find Cars yeah every day for their daily dose of automotive inspiration. Do you want to expose your brand to a highly targeted list of automotive enthusiasts in a very unique and very personal way? Well, I can help you. Contact me, Mark Green, at mark at carsyeah.com or through the website at carsyeah.com today to learn more. For several years now, you've heard me talk about Linkage Magazine. I've been a subscriber since the start. Their talented and creative team brings you a spectacular publication and website that shares the automotive passion from a worldwide perspective. Linkage is about driving, restoring, collecting, and firsthand experience at collector car auctions and more. They bring you real-world values plus rational, experienced opinions on the current markets. They cover the automotive world and the people who share our passions. And Linkage Magazine has grown, mailing you six issues annually. Join me on this journey with Linkage. They're geared for the automotive life. You can subscribe at LinkageMag.com. So, John, we are back, and as I like to say, we're going to dive a little deeper into the corner. Before we get into this book... 
and the many things you're doing today. I want to go back in time and talk a bit about this racing because I mentioned just some of the cars. Oh my goodness, I did vintage racing and you'll be proud to know that my two vintage race cars were a 1960 Lotus Formula Junior 18 and a 67 Lola T290 Sports Racer. So I have a little little bit of history with Lolas, but let's talk about you and racing and this bug with racing. My goodness, where do we start? I'll let you go. So sort of mid-80s, I had a few cars, and um, particularly that Ferrari 250 GT, Tour de France, Berlinetta. And at that time, they had started the Mille Miglia rerun in Italy. And so I did that three times. I think I finally got bored with it. Anyway, I think I did the last one about 1986. And then I thought I'd like to have a go at racing on tracks, So I started off in England, and I bought the RSR to do it with. I'd done some hill climbs before that in various uh, old Jaguars. And I started off in about 1987 with uh, with the RSR and uh, found that I liked it very much indeed. (laughs) No kidding. Yeah, so I, I went on from there. Well, the RSR, I mean, that's kind of a switch from a, a 120 or uh, you know, yeah. Jaguar. I mean, all of a sudden you're in this little zippy little sports car that does wonderful things. And who'd have thought that the prices of those would end up where they are today? Oh, yes. I have a story about that. I'd paid 15,000 pounds, probably about $25,000 for my first RSR. Whoa. So, uh, wait a minute. This is 87, 88. Yeah. One day, I remember it was at Alton Park Racetrack. Myself and the other guys were waiting to go out, and the previous 10-lapper was going on. So we would all get into the marshalling area and then get out and just have a a last-minute chat before we buckled up and went out. And while we were having this chat one day, one of the drivers, I think it was Gideon Hudson, said, just as the blue, said, one day, these cars will be worth a million. (laughs) <laughs> and we all laughed and said, no, they won't. Of course, you were completely wrong because they went on to be worth $2 million. Oh, yeah, and they just keep going up and up. I mean, it, it's pretty spectacular. You know, one of the cars that I mentioned that I said scary because uh, I've seen these things run, the Lola T70 Mark III B, my goodness, my friend, uh, that's a handful of a car. Actually, it was one of the easiest cars to drive. Really? Oh, no yeah. Kidding. Wow. Well, look, you've had a Lola C290. These things are proper race cars. They grip properly. They go where they should. It's, they're not, it's, it, I call a scary car an XK120 on a racetrack. <laughs> well, you know, I think, okay, now that you're saying that, I can see why you're saying that. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, but the T70 was just such a great car. And um, yeah, we see, but as I say, it gripped properly, it went where it was pointed. As long as everything held together, everything was good. Yeah. It was a- well, and then that March uh, 84G, another, oh, yeah. another beast. Wow. I thought, you know, I thought the March 84G was very similar to the Lola, um, but with ground effects. Mm, that and, helps. Uh, well, you know. Um, <laughs> Until it doesn't. <laughs> I had a mechanic at the time, um, Clive Robinson, from um, who used to work at Lola. And he was a terrific guy at setting up a chassis. And I remember Clive saying once, uh, yes, it's all very well with ground effect cars. The faster you go, the more they grip. The only trouble is 
when they stop gripping, they go off awfully quick. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, as watching uh, this week, and I've had uh, several people that race Indy cars on my show, Catherine Leggett was, was one of them, and she had a little shunt yesterday uh, and experienced that same thing coming out of turn four, I think. And, you know, they're, yeah, she, you know, the whole group started to slow up, and she either didn't see that or what and couldn't stop or stop well slow down fast enough because the way those cars and the minute you do let up you lose all your grip and there you go bob jerkle as they they say in some parts some parts of the world fortunately she's okay and the other driver that she had a cross up with but but you know all these wonderful cars that you raced and all this racing you did led to your writing and how did that transition come about um, you know, I just love the uh, the old 58 Ferrari Berlinetta so much that I, I wrote a, the story of the Tour de France Berlinettas. And then that was for Haynes Publishing. And the purchasing editor moved, started his own company, Veloce, Rod Granger, who I'm still with today, and said, why don't you write a book about the Porsche RSR? So I said, yes, okay. So I did that. It sort of went on like that. It did, I mean, sometimes I would suggest cars to him, and sometimes he would suggest things to me. A couple of years ago, he actually said, you know, there's this film coming out called Ford versus Ferrari. <laughs> yeah. He said, do you want to write a book about it? And I said, well, I remember it the first time around. So yes, I think I Yeah, I was there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, there's a couple other, bo- I mean, you've written so many books, but a couple other books on the inside of the sleeve of this Lola GT book, the uh, GT40 book that you did and the Ford Ferrari, Ford, Ford versus Ferrari book that you did. But today we're going to talk about this new book because my friends at Velote sent me a copy. It's really wonderful. And it's about a, I would say it's one of those cars that maybe a lot of people don't know a lot about, but it has a lot of similarities, as your subtitle says, to the Ford GT40. The Lola GT. So let's kind of get into this car and maybe start at the beginning. Talk a little bit about this vehicle, how it was developed, why it was developed, and then maybe we'll get into a few of the details. Okay. Well, Eric Broadley had the um, the owner and the then designer of Lola in the 60s. He might even make the tea. It was such a little company. <laughs> he decided that after making uh, a few uh, single-seaters, really, it would be a good idea to try and design a GT car and accept one of the then current American engines for power. So he used the good old Ford 289 and he designed a car called the Mark 6 GT. And he bought it out and it raced a couple of times and it was okay, but it obviously needed quite a lot of developments. And I suspect that in those days, Eric Broadley probably didn't have access to a lot of money to be able to do that with. And then Ford had been looking for a car to win Le Mans with. And they had just broken off relations with Enzo Ferrari because Ferrari wouldn't sell Ferrari to Ford. So basically, John Wire, who knew Eric Broadley quite well and who went on to, of course, run the GT40 racing efforts, said to Ford, why don't we visit Lola in Bromley in Kent, near London, and have a look at their car? So that is what happened. They came along, saw the car. Roy Lunn, who was a Ford designer, was English himself. And he was put, I won't say in charge, but I think he was by Ford, who basically arranged with Eric Broadley that they would own Lola for a couple of years 
while the Ford GT40 was produced. The problem was Roy Lund decided he didn't like the front suspension, so he designed a new front suspension, and Eric Broadley did not like it. I think the two men did not get on. (laughs) And the next problem was that Lund saw the GT40 as being a streetcar after it had been a race car. And Eric Broadley was horrified at that because he simply saw it as a race car. And to that end, he'd given it an aluminum lightweight monocoque chassis. Well, Roy Lund said, no, no, we need to make it in steel. So Eric Broadley and Roy Lund fell out to the extent that they would only speak to one another via written messages passed via John Wire. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. It was that. So in the end, what happened was that uh, Eric Broadley's contract, by his request, was shortened to a year, and Ford got their GT40. They gave Lola a new factory on on the plough trading estate and set up Ford Advanced Vehicles next door. So the first few GT40s were actually built at Lola and before the whole operation went next door. So, yes, the GT40 is originally a Lola. It's a fascinating story. And when you look at the car, you see the DNA for sure. You know, they're definitely cousins, kissing cousins, I guess you could yep. say, in a way. But uh, fascinating story. And, and I love the way you brought it to light. And looking through your book, what's great about it is there's lots of old pictures and diagrams. I mean, it's really a walk through history, of course. Uh, but I love all the the, um, the visuals that are provided in there uh, that give us a real taste for what was to come with the wonderful 4GT. So, uh yeah, or GT40, rather, uh, which is just, you know, a spectacular car, and we all know the history of that there. Was there anything that came to light in this respect when you were putting the book together and, and learning everything, and that was an inspiration to you about this car, about the development of the car, something like that that really stood out to you that you went, wow, that was pretty cool? Apart from the original design, which was just terrific, and of course just 40 inches high, I think the thing that stood out with the GT40 to begin with was the fact that actually Carol Shelby and Phil Remington, his chief mechanic, were the result were the reasons the GT40 succeeded at Le Mans. A lot of the Ford management, and it's not their fault, they just didn't understand racing. Carol Shelby did. And he got things right. Now, John Wire had been in charge first of all, but for various reasons and no real faults here, the GT40 John Wire relationship to begin with didn't really work in racing. But when Carol Shelby got his hands on the whole thing, it did. Well, there's that great scene from the movie, of course, uh, that, you know, Carol's in the the offices, the, the bureaucracy that was Ford Motor Company. And took a big gamble, you know, to old, old man Ford and said, look, just let me do my job. Get out of the way. You guys, you guys are mucking this up too much. Uh, that great line about the little red folder that went through all the different hands and, yes. you know, and you, you could see, you know, I don't know, it wasn't there during the real time, but you know, the risk that Carol Shelby took of kind of putting it in his face. And then the guy saying, okay, 
you better go out and win. And uh, boy, they did. But you're right. That was BB, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, BB too. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. He didn't like people stepping on his toes either. I think he, <laughs> no, think he, I... I think he felt like he was, you know, his role <laughs> was being circumvented a little bit. But the truth was that old Carroll Shelby knew how to race. And you think about racing back in those days compared to today and the even more bureaucracy and all the layers and stuff. I mean, it was just like, get out of my way. Just let me do this. Well, I think the other important thing is the fact that Carol Shelby knew the drivers on first terms and he knew the right people to hire and Ford didn't. Um, and so Carol Shelby was, yeah, he was the right man for the job. Yeah, and you throw in the dynamics of Ken Miles into the mix, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you've got a, a nice little cocktail that could upset some people, but uh, get the job done. Well, Ken Miles was a great development driver. He was a good race driver, but he was probably even a greater development engineer. He was a bit like Mark Donahue became, somebody who could drive the car and get out and say, put a couple of degrees of negative camber on that, you know, and set it up properly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. As you were putting this book together, did you face any challenges with it? Yes. Gosh, I haven't got a copy in front of me, but... There was a booklet bought out by Roy Lunn within Ford about how to design the projects, etc., etc. And Ford had guarded that quite uh, avidly. So this, this car profile had been guarded by Ford, as I say. And by great good fortune, by Alan Grant, who owns one of these GT Mark 6s, Alan uh, knew the right people at Ford to talk to and get the rights to use parts of it. And so for the first time since about 1964, that is able to be seen, how the Ford people were going about designing the GC40. Wow. Well, I could see that because automakers had lots of secrets they didn't want people to know, especially their competition over at uh, General Motors or anywhere else in the world. Fascinating. So in your book, you talk about that a bit. Yes. Um, I mean, you, you, I'm just flicking through it right now. And there's lots of um, mock-ups of the, uh, the the proposed GT40, which changed over time, as against the Jaguar E-Type and the Chevrolet Corvette, which is shown in photographs in comparison. When you think about this car, going back to the Lola GT and the evolution into the GT40, what makes you smile the most about that, especially being a racer? Um, what makes me smile, I think, oh gosh, well, I'm, I was very glad to see that the, that Ford uh, succeeded and did beat Ferrari comprehensively. Uh, but I, I found it, uh, when I watched the film, I, I thought how Lola was, uh, airbrushed out of the story. <laughs> well, they were, weren't they? Because as I looked at your book, I'm going, well, how come I don't remember any of this in, in the movie? I don't, were yeah. the words Lola even mentioned? I well, there was that one scene when suddenly there's a white GT40 and it's like, well, where did this come from? Oh, well, we just designed this last weekend. Yeah, right. Really? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that's unfortunate. Well, again, the books and the stories are typically better than the movies because they've got to, you know, edit everything down to a time frame. I didn't. You think it was? I thought it was a good movie. I enjoyed it. I did but, too. Yeah. But it was somewhat elastic with the truth. <laughs> uh, well, as most movies are, right? Um, that's kind of Hollywood for you. I mean, they need to keep people's attention, especially people that aren't car people, and perhaps people that aren't car people. The Lola story would be 
far too much to have to insert to make it have it make any sense. Yes, you you would have to sort of cut away to an earlier time when the car was the Lola was being designed, wouldn't you? Right. And then that back into the film and would become a bit tedious. Yeah, I think so. When you think about all the cool cars that you've raced and that you've had, is there one that stands out as a very special vehicle? And if so, tell me a little story about that ride. Oh, well, the Lola T70, yes, Mark (laughs) Coupe. Incidentally, one thing I've left out is, of course, back to the story of the GT40. Once Eric Broadley had um, cut his ties with, with Ford, uh, he went back to designing Lola's, and the very next one he designed was the T70 after the GT40. But, of course, it was the same story as with the GT Mark VI. Lola didn't have the money to develop the car in the same way that Ford had been able to with the GT40. But the T70 for a race car, I just thought, was a, a wonderful thing. And um, I was very lucky. I won a couple of races with it and was usually in the top five. Although... How about this? Here's a story for you. Okay. Um, old friend Peter Schleifer, who used to drive some of these cars as well. I'm talking about back in the late 80s and 90s. And um, we spoke again not too long ago. And he said, John, do you miss racing? And I said, every now and then, Peter, I do. He said, yes, he said. But do you remember when we used to be at Spa and you'd wake up on race morning at 6 o'clock and hear the rain pouring down mm. yourself? In about three hours, I should be going down a one-in-four hill at about 150 miles an hour and with a, with a, with a double bend at the bottom of it. <laughs> uh, oh, my gosh. A spa, yeah, in the rain, no thanks, yeah. Um, holy cow. <laughs> that would, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine, but it sure sounds like fun. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, look, you've raced yourself. You, um, you well know. Once you get going, fear disappears, doesn't it? Because you're too busy. Right. You haven't got time to be frightened. Well, <laughs> you know, I'll tell you a quick story. The first time I raced a vintage car was a 1960 Lotus Formula Junior 18, and it was. The morning I woke up, it was vintage racing, and it was raining. And I was sitting there on the grid, and they put all of us novices out together. So I was going out on the track with other Formula Fords, but also there was some Chevrolet Corvettes, and there was a guy in a Frisbee, and I mean... (laughs) Yeah, and I'm sitting there, and I'm looking down, and my right leg is, like, vibrating, you know? It's shaking. And my good friend, Louis Shefshake, who runs JNL Fabricating, I just saw him this weekend, actually. Uh, he, wonderful business, and he prepped the car, and he leaned down, and he goes, how you doing? And I go, I'm a little nervous with this rain and these, you know, like, three-inch-wide Dunlop tires. And he looks at me, and he goes, Mark, just remember one thing. The throttle goes both ways. Yeah. And uh, so I went out and gingerly went around the track and stayed on the course and was terribly slow. But I tell you, you're right. Racing, it's like motorcycle riding. I rode motorcycles for years. You don't think about anything else once you get on the track. And that's the wonderful thing about racing, right? Yeah, I think so. You're living in the moment. Yeah. And that's, yeah, You. W- I wish I could do that with everyday life. You know, just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you think about driving to work some mornings and you get there and you don't even remember the drive and you go, what? How, how yeah. could that be? But on a track, you remember every pebble in every corner, yeah. every time you come around and go, where'd the, where'd the pebble go? You know, yeah. it's not there anymore. Yeah. You, you understand, John, no doubt. I'm going to be a bit of a car psychologist for you today. This is a rather unique question that I'll bet no one's ever asked you. If you were reincarnated, pun intended, manifest as a vehicle, 
what would you be and why? <laughs> wow, that's a good one. Yeah, you got to dig deep for this one. I'll have to think about that. I've really, I, <laughs> well, here's the way to approach this, okay? Yeah. Um, it's not what you want to be, which is where most people go. Yeah, exactly. I get you. I'd probably be a Prius. Oh, my gosh. Okay, now, you went somewhere <laughs> I never... What on earth, John? What? Why, why would you be a Prius? Oh, hiding behind hiding behind stop signs and uh, <laughs> being out every now and then to go and do the grocery. <laughs> Okay. Well, all right. You took me in a place I never dreamed we'd go. I, I was waiting for some kind of marvelous race car or something like that. But uh, is it fair to say maybe time has slowed you a little bit or, you know, yes. just, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That happens to the best Actually, of us. I, Mark, you're talking about racing. The scariest vehicle that I've ever driven was uh, a hydroplane. Oh, my gosh. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, I want you to talk about this because I tell you, listeners, uh, I always ask my guests to send me some pictures of themselves. And, uh, yeah, John sent me a picture of him in a boat. And I've talked to people that race hydroplanes and boats. That's another level of scary. Yeah. Because when things go bad, they can go very bad. So you yeah. raced boats, too. Only only for a couple of years. It was just such a lovely thing. Uh, it was a 1964 Jones hydro, Jones built hydroplane with a 283 Chevy in it. And um, we got timed at 102 mile an hour one day on the water, which is um, fast. Fairly, fairly rapid, yes. Of course, the thing is, when you get into a hydroplane race, every time you go around the circuit marked by big buoys, the water the water is being churned up by the various boats. So it's not like driving on a track where the track stays the same. The surface of the water changes all the time. Oh. And you just have to sort of grit your teeth and, and, and put your foot down. And it's, uh, yeah, it was an interesting, I was, I wasn't, I wasn't sorry when I stopped that. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, it's a spooky thing. I, again, I've talked to a lot of people, even had authors of some books uh, regarding speed, speed records on water in hydroplanes yeah. and yeah. Uh, some pretty nasty accidents and lives lost and so forth. But uh, yeah, that's a scary deal. You know, I, I, it's kind of akin to me to, I grew up surfing and when I first started snow skiing, I thought, okay, this is going to be pretty easy because the mountain stays put versus the ocean when you take off on a wave. It's always different and always changing. Yes. Yeah, so yes. I think it helped my, my snow skiing quite a bit, uh, for I'm sure. sure it did. Yeah, yeah, quite wonderful. Well, I always ask my guests to talk about books. We're, of course, talking about this wonderful book by our guest today, John Starkey, titled Lola GT, The DNA of the Ford GT40. Now, you've written so many books uh, but one thing I want to talk about is uh, you also have kind of ventured into something a little different with uh, aircraft. Is that right? And can you yes, talk about I, that a little bit? Okay. So I was always interested in airplanes and particularly military aircrafts from being a kid, uh, more than cars, really. And I'd always, I, I, yes, a couple of years ago, I wrote a book about um, what happened to uh, Britain's RAF Fighter Command during 1941 and 42. And remind yourself, the Battle of Britain had happened in 1940, and Britain had scraped through that. And I wanted to go on and see what happened between then and um, the invasion of France in June 1944. And 
I was just stunned to discover that, um, well, basically, the British had lost aircraft at the rate of four to one against the German Air Force. That's uh, that's a lot. It was very much covered up at the time. Propaganda, British propaganda had always been, our oh, chaps are out there fighting the brave fights, but the actual casualty rate was um, not good. What was the reason for that? At the end of 1940, Dowding, who, Air Chief Marshal's Dowding, who'd been in charge of fighter command, was ousted from his job, despite having won the battle. And a couple of people were put in charge of fighter command. And the one of them, a chap called William Sholto Douglas, who was the boss at the time, invited the chap who'd been the head of uh, the RAF in the First World War, Lord Trenchard, to give his advice on what to do next. And Trenchard suggested that um, the that fighter command should carry out sweeps across occupied France and using a few bombers as bait to bring the German fighters up, which for the next two years, Sholto Douglas and his underling, Lay Mallory, did. And it didn't work. The Germans by that time had got radar, they could scramble their fighters and get the height advantage and then dive on the British. Mm. And the Spitfire, whilst being a wonderful intercepting fighter, was not an escort fighter. It didn't have the range. So a lot of the pilots were frantically looking at their fuel gauges at the same time as they were trying to fight off the Messerschmitts and Fokkerwolfs. Oh, my goodness. Now, what is the title of this book? It's just called um, The RAF's Cross-Channel Offensive. Wow. Fascinating. Well, amazing time. You think about those wonderful Spitfires. There's a few people up here in the Northwest that have them whenever you go to an air show and you hear one fly by. It's like, yeah. It just makes yeah. a sweet, wonderful sound. And then they bring yeah. out the P-51 Mustangs and, you know, they have a, a entirely different sound to them. But uh, it was an incredible time. A lot of brave people. Wow. Same engine. Yeah. Yeah. But they sound different. Yeah, yeah, they do. Actually, while I was while I was researching the book, a friend of ours is called Rob Colling, and he's got a wonderful collection of aircraft. You might have heard of them. They've got everything. And he's a very good pilot himself. And I said to Rob one day on the telephone, if you had been in 1942-43, what aircraft would you like to have flown? And he thought for a while and said, hmm, probably a Focke Wolf 190. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, there's an honest answer. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So I'm going to enable you to go on the ultimate drive today, John. And this is the great fun part about cars. Yeah, I'm going to park any car in the world driveway. You can take it for a drive. But here's another great part of this ultimate drive. You can take anybody with you, even somebody from the past who's no longer with us, as a companion. So what does the ultimate drive look like for you? Wow. Um, okay. I would like to try a modern McLaren uh, GT car on the street, just to see what they're like, because they're, all these modern supercars are so so far away from anything that I've ever experienced. Mm-hmm. And for a companion, if I can dig into the past, uh, I'd like to take um, Group Captain Johnny Johnson, who was Britain's fighter race, top-scoring fighter race. He sound, I've read his book several times, and he comes across as a very level-headed and interesting person. That would be an interesting ride. What a unique answer to that question. 
<laughs> I love it. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, and why not a new McLaren, you know? So I'll ring the boys up over there at McLaren. I've talked to some of them and uh, see what they can line up for you. And we'll, we'll ship it across the pond, as they say. You've taken us on a wonderful journey today. And I, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with me today. I think you and I could talk for hours and hours. Maybe we have you back and talk about some other books you've done. But until then, could you uh, leave us with maybe some words of inspiration, advice, or a success quote of some kind? Oh, many years ago, um, when I was managing a comedian, I was sitting in the office of Michael Grade, who at that time headed up London Weekend Television, and Jasper had just signed to do a series for them. And quite out of the blue, I happened to ask Michael Grade, who was a pretty savvy guy. He's still around. He's a lord now. And I said to him, um, if you had any words of advice, Michael, what would you give me? And he thought about it for a moment and he said, always have someone else to blame. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) That's hilarious. Well, okay, I'll keep that in mind. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. What a a wonderful thing. Well, Wonderful British sense of humor. I love the British sense of humor. Some people have a hard time with it. They're like, what? What's going on here? But uh, tongue in cheek. Having managed a comedian for all that time and watched him on stage through hundreds of shows and watched comedy around the world, I don't think there is much difference between senses of humor. You're probably right. You know, but I, I always say the wonderful thing about you Brits is you can completely put us down, but you sound like you're doing it so nicely. <laughs> oh, hey, I wouldn't I wouldn't put America down. I've lived here for about 25 years. I think it's a great country, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy, yes. Well, we're happy to have you. Uh, you're a great, great asset to this country, and, uh, you know, we all have a lot in common going back in time. And I'll tell you something funny. In our family here, we did the 23andMe to look at the background checks of, you know, history and everything. And I do have some, some roots going back to England, uh, but they also go to Germany and all over the place. I'm a complete mutt. But we learned that my wife is pretty much about 98% English, so uh, which she never knew. So Wow. Know. I mean, hey, Mark, just a quick one. I mean, I, I'm very interested in history, and we're all mutts. We are all immigrants. <laughs> we are, people of humanity has been ch- charging across the world for forever since they started. I even found the, I, I like a little small percentage of Neanderthal, which my wife says, oh, that explains some of your yeah. behavior. <laughs> so there you go. How can people follow along with you and learn more about you, John? I, I must admit, I keep a low profile. Um, I, I stopped having a website a few years ago because I had nothing more to write about. So, <laughs> um, well, I, we'll just send him to Veloce. How's that? Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, great. And I want to do a shout out to my friends there, Kevin Atkins and Geraldine, uh, who got me together with John today. They brought me some wonderful guests, and uh, they've hit it out of the park again today with, with John Starkey. And, uh, of course, we also have to do a little hats off to your wife, Sue. She connected us today with her IT expertise. So thank you, Sue. Very kind of you to do that. John, thanks for being so generous today with your time and expertise and sharing what a wonderful life that you've had. Until you and I talk again, my friend, I'll see you down the road. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. It was great fun. 20, 50, or 100 years from now, will there be a workforce to care for the collector vehicles we love? With auto shop programs disappearing across the country, It's a question we enthusiasts have to ask. 
That's why I support the RPM Foundation, which exists to ensure that the critical skills necessary to preserve and restore these vehicles aren't lost to time. One of the many ways RPM, which is short for Restoration, Preservation, and Mentorship, is accomplishing this goal is through workforce development initiatives. The RPM Apprenticeship Program enables the next generation of artisans to earn a living while they learn the craft of restoring and preserving these vehicles directly from industry professionals. The Endangered Skills Program documents the process of masters training future craftspeople on a variety of critical skills in danger of being lost forever. For more information on how the RPM Foundation is driving the future of the collector vehicle skills trade, visit RPM Foundation today. They're one of the charities of choice here on Cars Yeah! Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah! Yeah!